Our text for this morning comes from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Our reading will begin in verse 1 and continue through verse 21. Hear the word of God. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are, of all people, most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead, the word of our God. It is sad to say, but in Paul's day, there were at least within the congregation in Corinth, some who believed that the resurrection was not actual or factual or tangible, but rather that it was merely something mystical, poetical, and inspirational. Now why though people that had that faith were part of this household of faith that was declaring Christ raised from the dead, I, I can't be sure. It could be that they appreciated the beauty of the teaching of Christ and recognized the life well spent following that path, and therefore wanting to live out a life that uh, seemed peaceful and productive, that they had chosen the teachings of Jesus Christ as being the best for them. It could be that they simply were 
living out what would later become known as Pascal's Wager. Most of you probably are familiar with that in one form or another, but the 17th century French philosopher Blaise Pascal theorized that if he was going to look at his life and choose how to live, he could make essentially a wager about which would cut, minimize the losses, declaring that if he lived his life as a follower of Christ in accordance with the teachings of Christ, and it turned out that he was wrong, that all that he would have sacrificed would be certain advancements that he might have made had he compromised the principles of Christ's teaching, and certain pleasures or experiences that this world has to offer, but Christ says that they are offered within a particular context, and that context alone. On the other hand, if he lived his life as if there was no God, and that Christ either was a figment of imagination or was one upon whom a title was assigned when it was not reality, and turned out to be wrong in that way, well, then he would go to hell. So he decided, a little less money, hell. I will take a little less money in this life. That's the wager that I will take. And these people may have been part of the household of faith, making that wager, seeing the beauty in the words of Christ and the life of Christ and even the early fruit that was being born in the, in the followers of Christ. But they were still suspicious. Some of them may very well have been declaring this whole resurrection thing is nice, but it's just there to show us that metaphorically we have a new life when we turn over a new leaf. Some of them were wrestling not so much with the question of Christ's resurrection, but the implications of their own resurrection, the promise that those who die in Christ will rise and live eternally, and that the eternal life that has been promised begins in the life of those who believe at the time that they believe. And they just had not reconciled that tension in declaring that, yeah, maybe Jesus rose from the dead, but people don't rise from the dead. And Paul offers a very forceful correction, both of the notion that people would not rise if Christ indeed rose, and the whole idea of following a way if Christ himself had not risen. Paul's words here in chapter 15, he's taking on uh, the mindset that in any way, shape, or form is denying the resurrection in the person of Jesus Christ. And by so doing, he's also taking on any way in which we might be prone to adopt Pascal's wager for the basis of the life that we have. Paul makes very clear here, and he declares, opposed to Pascal's theory, is that if Christ has not risen from the dead, then the followers of Jesus Christ ought to be pitied more than any other people. And the implication there for those who are followers of Christ is not only for the assurance that we celebrate this day, but a challenge for our life day to day. Because the implication is that the gospel penetrates us and shapes us and moves us in such a way that we live not for ourselves, but sacrificially, even willing to suffer for the sake of other people and for the glory of God. That at the end of our lives, if it turns out that the whole thing is a fraud, that there ought to be something pitiful about the way we chose to live, not just safe and therefore losing nothing. Paul says, 
not only should we be most pitied, but your faith is in vain if Christ has not risen from the dead, and then perhaps even more foundational, and therefore you are still in your sins. And Paul clearly ties those things together for any of us who wonder what is the fate for those who are followers of Jesus Christ, and we may believe in one sense or just don't question the resurrection of Christ, but are not sure about ourselves, Paul puts those two things together. If we who believe in Christ cannot be raised and to live in presence of God, then he says, then nobody does, and that would include Christ. But if Christ was raised from the dead, he is the first fruits, he is the demonstration that God's promise was real and that all who trust in him will also have that resurrection. The question for us is how do we know? How are we to base our faith upon something that happened 2,000 years ago? Paul says the answer is from the evidence. It is true for us, and it was also what he was appealing to for the people of his day. Now, imagine this for a moment. Some of you may be familiar with the, the, this story. But in February of 2003, what is known as the heist of the century took place in Antwerp, Belgium. The Antwerp diamond uh, had been stolen in what is considered to be in some ways still the perfect crime. It has yet to be solved. They have not found it, and they don't know most of the people who were part of the crime ring uh, to begin with. That A small group of people somehow broke in uh, to the gallery where the diamond was, and despite the, the heat detectors, the seismic sensors, and a lock, that had over 100 million possible combinations, they made their way in, took the diamond, and escaped, and almost no clues. Now, they did find one guy, um, and a man named um, Leonardo Nardabartello, and he was convicted. They consider him probably to be the ringleader, but they don't know, because he isn't talking. He hasn't given up anybody else in his, in his group, he was arrested, he was convicted, he has done his time, and he is now out, and they still have no idea where the diamond is, and he's actually reaping the rewards of being part of this greatest heist of the century, because he now has the rights for book and movies that are coming to him. Not to mention that he's got a hundred million dollar diamond somewhere in the hiding that only he and a handful of other people know. Now imagine if either soon after the heist, or even now, some guy was to come forward and said, hey, I know who took that diamond. I saw them do it. I was walking around outside of the gallery, minding my own business that night, and then I, I saw these guys, and not only did I see these guys break in, come out, and then get away, but I knew them. I went to school with them. I knew them by name. I spent time with them. I knew them, I knew them quite well, and I saw them do it. An eyewitness like that was to come forward. That would be pretty convincing evidence. But now imagine that it wasn't one guy who came forward, but five guys who came forward, all of them who had gone to school together and said, look, we, we were there, we saw it, we know them, we know where they live, we know what they do for a living, we, you know, we've just known them, we've known them for years. And all of them say essentially the same thing, naming the people who were part of that uh, ring that stole uh, the diamond. If five guys came, 
and offered the same testimony, that would be tremendously convincing. Imagine it wasn't just five, but imagine that it was 50 guys who showed up and declared, you know, we, we all were in an area. We, we saw these guys coming out, uh, carrying uh, the diamond. We, we've known these guys. We know them by name. We've known them for years. If 50 people came out and said substantially the same thing, the only differences are the reflection of their personalities and what was important to them, but the tangible facts all remained the same, and they all fingered the same people. I think it's safe to say that the prosecutor would have a slam dunk case. What if it was 150? All saying the same thing. Or 250? The number of people that are gathered in this room, all of you would go and we say the same thing. All the people that have been in both services today. There should be 350, 400 people all saying the same thing. Almost by any measure in any culture of the world, if you have 150, 250, 300 people all declaring the same facts, the only variances based on perspective and, and, uh, and personality, it would be an almost certainty that what they were testifying to is a reality. New Testament scholar Simon Kistemacher declares this, in a Jewish court of law, the presence of two or three witnesses was mandatory to prove the veracity of any event. The Apostle Paul was writing here, not only to the Corinthians, but to all who would come later and declare that it wasn't two or three witnesses, and it wasn't five, and it wasn't 50, and it wasn't even 250 witnesses, but there were more than 500 people. In fact, we, we see what he's writing here. There was... First, he appears to Cephas, and then to the 12. And then there was an occasion at some point where 500 guys saw him at the same time. 500 people. The word brothers here is significant. It indicates that they'd had some connection already with the 12, with Jesus. They weren't just people that had heard that that must be Jesus and then added their testimony to it. They knew him. They had spent time with him. They saw him, and when they saw him, they knew him by name. They knew that it was Jesus. 500 of them at one time. And one of the things also important to note there, it says 500 brothers, which is 500 men. And Paul is acting as a, a lawyer here. And in the Jewish court of law at that time, only men could testify. So it has nothing to do with the women who saw him. And there would have likely been at least as many women who saw him at that time as well. And we know that women testified because we've heard their recording, what they recorded, read to us and declared to us this morning. It is an open and shut slam dunk case if it was any other caper that we heard about that 500 to 1,000 people, and it's not even just subsequently, but in this particular case, the more than 500 that testified that saw him at one time after he had been crucified and put into the tomb and declared that they had seen him alive. You see, we celebrate this day not because it's inspirational, but because it's factual. The faith that we have is not something that is just in vain, poetic, that gives us a nice life of peace and a sense of peace within. 
It is a historic reality. And the Apostle Paul, taking all of this evidence, speaking to people who are perhaps understandably asking a question. I mean, dead people don't get up. And said, but Christ is indeed risen from the dead. And therefore, your faith is not in vain. And therefore, your sin has been put to death. And you and I who believe are free. That's the reason for the joy that we have available to us. Deep within, difficult to describe, but very real. Our hope is built on a historic reality of Christ who died, who rose again, conquering death, conquering sin, giving life to you and to me. That is reason to celebrate this day and every day. I invite you to stand now.